Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. It's Black History Month, and today we hear about a long-running tradition at one of Appalachia's historically black universities, the annual Homecoming Step Show at West Virginia State University. Stepping is part of our history. It goes way back, and so this is a part that we see that we stay connected, and it's always good to see different people actually taking up that throne of stepping. And the abandoned Fairmont Bryan site in Marion County, West Virginia, was a common hangout spot. But there's a hidden danger. It is wildly radioactive, and parts of it are really, really dangerously radioactive. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. West Virginia is home to two historically black colleges and universities, and one of them remains committed to its mission of primarily serving African-American students, West Virginia State University. It was founded in 1891, just a few miles from Charleston. Fraternities and sororities introduced step dancing there decades ago and made it part of the school's annual homecoming celebration. Folkways reporter Tracy Phillips has been attending step shows since she was a kid. Last fall, she brought along her 11-year-old daughter, Jaylee. They bring us this story. We are at West Virginia State University. We are watching the step show. Let's see them step. That's my daughter, Jaylee, and this is a step show. It's got clapping. Stomping and chanting. We're in the old West Virginia State University gym, where members of the public are in the bleachers surrounding the basketball court where the stage is set up. College students representing each Greek organization on campus take a turn entering the gym to a selected song or chant. Along with the undergrads are alumni from the 1960s until present day. After their grand entrance, the students take the stage where they perform a three to five minute routine. Everyone is sporting hats, boots, pins, and sweatshirts in their organization's colors. You got Delta Sigma Theta walking out right now. Delta Sigma Theta is just one of the sororities that's stepping today. As an HBCU graduate and Delta member myself, I thought it was important for Jaylee to know this history and to experience this culture. So I see her being here as a rite of passage. Both of Jaylee's grandmothers are graduates of West Virginia State. I'm hoping she'll one day attend an HBCU and be a Delta, too. We'll see. I think they're about to start the clap again. I think they're all helping each other out. That's what I see. Oh, stopping and clapping. This is all part of a long tradition at historically black colleges and universities. The Homecoming Step Show is a way for African-American fraternities and sororities to express love and pride for their respective organizations to a broader community and a way for alumni and community members to reunite. Homecoming is when you see all this crowd come in from the people you knew and just the enthusiasm that HBCU brings with the power and the fellowship of scholarly people. That's Kenny Hale of Charleston, West Virginia. And this is Addison Hall of Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a lot of people that you haven't seen in a while showing back up, being in the same space that y'all shared and create all these memories at. Dr. Shaniqua Smith is from New York, but she went to the university. She's also a member of Delta Sigma Theta. Well, I'm Greek, and so it's just a joyous time, and stepping is part of our history. It goes way back, and so this is a part that we see that we stay connected, and it's always good to see different people actually taking up that throne of stepping. Stepping is a ritual dance performance based on synchronized movements. It goes way back to African cultural traditions. America's black fraternities and sororities are a unique and vital part of 20th century African-American history. 
Today, America's nine black fraternities and sororities are among three million members strong. They're part of the National Panhellenic Council, also known as the Divine Nine. Oh, they're called the AKAs, guys. They're walking out. Ooh, ooh. The AKAs are walking out with little kids in there, too. Everybody's holding up their pinky for the AKAs. This is good, good, good. They rockin' this. They have a brown outfit with their facts on it. That's Alpha Kappa Alpha, a sorority that was founded in 1908. One of the Delta sorority members performing today is Ashlyn Bell of Charleston, West Virginia. Ashlyn is a junior majoring in elementary education. She says part of why she joined a sorority was her memories of going to a step show. Growing up in West Virginia, I came to homecoming all the time, and I just always seen the community. Actually, my mom is a Delta, so I'm a legacy, and we'd come down and watch the step shows, and I just remember always being hype and fun. It was lit. It was just over the top, loud. I just thought it was so fun and so cool. I just couldn't keep my eyes off what they were doing, how they are moving with their hands and jumping and screaming. I just thought it was amazing. This year, Ashlyn performed by herself, representing her sorority Delta Sigma Theta. She came out to the song It's Got To Be Real from the 1970s doing a step called The Duck. Bend your knees, hands out, head turned slightly up just a little bit. You know, you just lean into it. Ashlyn wore black shorts and a red vest with Delta designs on it. She also wore sunglasses and spray painted red boots. So the boots are actually traditional, something that past uh, Alpha Delta has done for the step show, so I'm going to continue the tradition. Clothing and paraphernalia are a big part of the step show. Debbie Hart is the Director of Diversity and Equity at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. She's also a member of Delta Sigma Theta sorority and was initiated during the 1970s on the campus of West Virginia State. Um, when we crossed line in 1976, we all had to get a white suit made. We had a white suit on with a red shirt and we got gloves and we got boots to match. And the amazing thing was that we had all 12 of us had a cane and we were going to tap the canes and cross them back and forth. Kids are also a part of the community at homecoming. Debbie says she remembers going to a step show at eight years old. Uh, my grandmother would buy us an outfit, black and gold, because we're all going to state's homecoming. I remember uh, aggravating my family to say, are we staying for the step show? Lots of rich history and culture at the West Virginia State University annual homecoming step show. Each year, the tradition of stepping, strolling, dance, chants, HBCU Greek life, community, and pride to be a college-educated African-American in Appalachia lives on. After the step show, I asked my daughter Jaylee what she thought of it. I thought the step show was, it was something. It was like really empowering, motivative. The people out there were stepping, they were like, really good. Homecoming, it looks like a fun thing. I can't wait to get there and be able to do myself. With Jaylee in Institute West Virginia, I'm Tracy Phillips. One of West Virginia State University's former academic deans is a man named Carter G. Woodson. Woodson was born in Virginia, the son of formerly enslaved people, and grew up on a small family farm his parents bought in West Virginia. He's also the founder of what became Black History Month. Woodson devoted much of his life to preserving black history and culture, some of which our Folkways reporters are documenting as well, like Folkways fellow Vanessa Pena, a recent graduate of West Virginia State University. Vanessa spoke with Xavier Oglesby, a master artist in soul food cooking from Beckley, West Virginia. She has this story. When peace like a river attendeth my way. It's a warm spring afternoon at Manor House Ministries, a Second Baptist Church in Beckley, West Virginia. 
Xavier Oglesby is singing his favorite hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, as he prepares a macaroni salad in the church's kitchen. Today, Xavier is cooking alone, but normally this kitchen would be bustling with life. It kind of reminds you of a, when you watch a bee's nest and how the bees are they're, they're buzzing around and everybody's just so busy doing. That's just kind of what it looks like. But they, it's all it's chaotic, but it's a it's an organized chaos. The ladies at the church growing up, you know, you, the old ladies, they'd be cooking and all the ladies, they, they would bring their best recipes. Every one of them is good at something, at least one thing. And they're, they pride themselves at that. It might be macaroni salad or a pan of biscuits or chitlins. Soul food is a cooking style that is intrinsic to Black culture, both in the South and Appalachia. Xavier says more so than the food itself, it's the way a meal comes together that makes soul food, soul food. When you think of soul food, that's the first thing you think is Black folks, because we were able to take nothing and make something out of it for a meal. And that's the way it is even today. You just got to reach and grab something. You just and keep going, you know. It's always going to be something that you may not have. And, uh, but you can make a meal anyway. Xavier has been cooking since he was a teenager. He's learned from four generations of his family, but learning how to cook in the Oglesby household wasn't always easy. As Xavier boils macaroni and cuts vegetables, he tells me growing up had its moments of strict instruction from his great-grandmother, Grandma Virginia. She cooked for the superintendents of the coal companies. And, uh, you know, as you know, back then they were domestics. And, um, that's what she did. She was known for that. I mean, this lady, she could cook, I mean, <laughs> almost in her sleep. It was amazing to me to just to see her cook. And uh, now she would sing, oh gosh, she would get in that kitchen. And everything had to be done perfectly. And she expected perfection from her great-grandson too. So she would stand there and watch me prepare a dish. She would have a wooden spoon in her hand and she'd watch me prepare this dish and I would have to do it exactly how she would do it. If I didn't do it, if I missed a step or whatever, she'd hit the back of my hand with the wooden spoon like that. Today at the church, women from Manor House Ministries talk in the next room while Xavier cooks. He says that in his family and at church, women were central to the cooking traditions he grew up with. So as a boy who was interested in cooking, he felt some resistance. Uh, eventually it was okay, but I've got, uh, like I say, I've got three other brothers and, and uh, it was going to be okay. In this family, you have to kind of uh, take your place and, you know, draw the line there. And so you just stand up and do that. And that's what I did. And then eventually, um, it was easier, I guess, for the guys in the family, the older men, to accept that and uh, like that. When you look around today, you know, people make uh, a living, guys make a living at doing everything. Now, Xavier is teaching his niece, Brooklyn Oglesby, how to cook soul food and family recipes. He's doing it through the West Virginia Folklife Apprenticeship Program, which is directed by the West Virginia State Folklorist, Jenny Williams. So this program is hosted every other year, but for a full year, artists can be a part of this program to pass on their traditional knowledge and art forms and skills to an apprentice of their choosing. Folklife Apprenticeship pairs are carrying on community-based traditional art forms and cultural practices, from fiddle instrument repair to mushroom foraging all with the goal of passing on stories, skill sets, and traditional knowledge. Full disclosure, I worked with Jenny as an AmeriCorps member this year. This is an excerpt from an interview she did with Xavier in Brooklyn, where Brooklyn talks about learning from her uncle. Uh, my main goal has been to learn how to cook, and he's taught me a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've always, I've been, I've had to cook. I mean, <laughs> I've lived on my own. I've had to make meals and stuff, and I've struggled since I've moved out with my own family. It's been a major struggle because half the time I'll spend two hours cooking just for it to be so nasty. Each apprenticeship pair keeps in mind the future of the tradition and who they want to pass their knowledge on to. I'm hoping I can raise two sons that know how to cook. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about because, like you said, his mom uh, taught them all to cook clean and do laundry and all that stuff. And I'm hoping I can 
keep that going and teach my kids and hopefully they'll be better cooks than me one day. For the past year, Xavier and Brooklyn have been spending time learning together. Jenny says Xavier and Brooklyn are exactly the kind of pairing the apprenticeship program aims to support. I was really excited to receive their application. Xavier has worked with us in our first round of the apprenticeship program. So to have him back again in this program is really exciting. And for him to bring on his niece uh, to learn their family cooking traditions, that's especially something that we want to support. As part of their work together, the Oglesby's have prepared food for community gatherings and also hosted events. One of those events is a card party, which is an informal community game night. Uh, on the cold camp, we used to have um, card parties and uh, people would go to each other's houses. On the nights that they would have the, the card parties that we would have, the ladies would bring uh, covered dishes and they would have all kinds of stuff. They would bring pig feet and, and somebody may bring some chitlins and somebody maybe bring a pound cake or two. These card parties have been hosted by Xavier in Brooklyn at the Women's Club in Beckley, West Virginia. They feature live music, tables with cards for guests to play a card game of their choice, and old-fashioned soul food. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Vanessa Pena in Charleston, West Virginia. Those two stories are part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in our region. You can find dozens more Folkways stories at our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, elected officials often call natural gas a bridge fuel to clean energy. But what happens to the radioactive waste products left by the fracking industry? Some of these sites, they often don't operate for longer than a year or two or three because it's a really difficult task to remove all the contaminants to treat oil-filled waste. It's a lot harder than these companies make it out to be. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. Starting in the late 2000s, parts of Appalachia saw a natural gas boom from hydraulic fracturing, also known as fracking. But the natural gas market has been erratic. Now, in some places, the oil and gas industry is leaving behind industrial sites that are radioactive and dangerous, like Fairmont Bryan in Marion County, West Virginia. That abandoned site, it turns out, became a popular hangout spot for unsuspecting young folks. Justin Noble is an investigative reporter who's been covering issues of radioactivity in the oil and gas industry. He recently wrote about the issue for Truth Dig. The story is titled, Inside West Virginia's Chernobyl, a highly radioactive oil and gas facility has become a party spot in Marion County. I spoke with Noble and asked him to read an excerpt. In the booming gas field that is the Marcellus Utica, the industry has been granted so many exemptions, government regulators are so ineffectual, and human health and safety is of so little value that somehow a miniature Chernobyl has been created and left unattended, its radioactive dust and dirt freely blowing in the breeze, just outside the city limits of an American college town. There are no gates, no guards, not even a no trespassing sign, the numerous small yellow notices with radioactivity symbols planted on fences, telephone poles, and random equipment blend into the site's colorful graffiti, just more detritus in a toxic dump. Over the course of three separate visits this summer, Gorby, Hunkler, myself, and a Pittsburgh filmmaker named Colin Sheehy entered the site unencumbered, just as countless locals and scrappers have done before us. On each of our visits, the busted-up furniture was arranged in a different manner, suggesting the site's ongoing interest to local visitors. 
But unlike them, we arrived armed with protective suits and face masks, knowledge about radioactivity, and a fancy Geiger counter. So just in this passage, your kind of description of what this site is, is, which is basically an abandoned industrial site where locals are hanging out, like that rings true to me from my teenage years a little bit, but it seems like there's something else going on here. What did y'all find out? Over the course of my reporting into oil field radioactivity, I've learned that a lot more comes to the surface with oil and gas development than just the oil and gas. The industry brings a lot of really toxic materials up from deep in the earth. And often you have heavy metals, you have carcinogens like benzene, volatile organics, and you have radioactive metals as well. And one of the most concerning ones is the radioactive metal radium, which is a known human carcinogen. And you have this really big waste stream in the oil field brine that comes up. Industry also calls that produced water. This is a major waste stream across the U.S. Three billion gallons of oil field brine a day comes to the surface with oil and gas development. And the industry has to do something with that. So the industry has had an interest in trying to, quote, treat that brine, trying to take out the toxicity, take out the heavy metals, take out the radioactivity, And you've got a lot of salt, right? So you can transform that into a usable product, maybe like road salts. And then with the watery component, you can use that to frack new wells. And that sounds really great to the industry. They love to promote that they can take a waste stream and repurpose it for something beneficial. The problem with brine is it has such a complex brew of toxic elements that it's actually really, really hard to treat. It's really hard to remove all the different contaminants from brine and get this clean product that you can then send back out into the world. And even if you do that successfully, you've collected all the toxicity, right? And and if part of that toxicity is radioactivity, you've created a facility where you are concentrating and collecting radioactivity. And at this particular site in West Virginia, this is exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to treat the oil field brine And if your plan isn't working perfectly, you're going to get gunked up really quickly and you're building up heavy metals, you're building up radioactivity, and you're building up potentially all sorts of problems. And across the board, um, these plants fail. Yeah. So we're talking about Fairmont, Brian, where that Geiger counter reads about 7,000 counts per minute, which maxes out the unit you later drive home the point that working at those levels of radioactivity for one week would take a worker over yearly limits set by the nuclear regulatory commission but yet people teenagers can wander in here without being stopped it sounds like what's the status of this facility i think anywhere in america if you have this kind of busted up industrial site it's going to be a place where kids are going to want to hang out And so if you've got this site sitting there up on a hill right above the Monongahela River, just outside the city limits of Fairmont, which is where this site is, um, it's an attractive place to just go and hang out. There's there's grassy fields. There's this big parking lot. There's these weird beat up buildings that you can wander around in and then containers of stuff, all this different equipment. Um, And what we realized and learned when we went there is it is wildly radioactive and parts of it are really, really dangerously radioactive. But as soon as the article came out, the EPA really kicked into high gear. They had found levels of radioactivity even higher uh, than we found. And the EPA is now working with the community. They've set up a call center for local residents to call and get information on the site. And I was told by an EPA official, they are in the process of, of fencing it off and you know, moving forward with this kind of bureaucratic process of, of studying the facility to see if it really fits the role of, of a national Superfund site. So they're in the process of, I wouldn't say cleaning it up, but setting it up for a possible cleanup and at least making sure that people from the town can't move around in it. The other piece of this that's alarming is that this is not a unique situation. You found sites like this elsewhere in Appalachia, as well as the U.S. So this is not a singular phenomenon limited to Fairmont, Brian. Some of these sites, they often don't 
operate for longer than a year or two or three because it's a really difficult task to remove all the contaminants to treat oil field waste is a lot harder than these companies make it out to be. So you, what you find is, you know, you have a bunch of sites that are currently operating. They're hard to access. No one's going to let you in there and want to show a investigative science journalist around. And then you have these abandoned sites that aren't operating anymore, but maybe they're fenced off or they're deep in the woods and there's still a security person guarding it. And Fairmont Brian was different. It was just right off the main road and it was all open and it was, you know, other people were hanging out there and they were entering it and we entered it just like them. So it was really a, a rare window to ground truth the concerns that had piled up over time in my reporting. In other instances, such as the Clearwater plant, which is in Doddridge County, just outside West Union, right there along Highway 50 in northern West Virginia, I didn't have access to the site and I still don't. But there's an equal amount of concern, in my opinion. This is another facility that was processing oil field wastewater. This facility claimed that they could take 600 truckloads a day. So if you, you go around the oil field, you see the brine trucks. They look like these little septic tank trucks. It can hold maybe like 4,000 plus gallons, 600 of those trucks a day. That is a lot of oil field wastewater. And they had grandiose language for how they were going to operate this plant. I mean, they claimed that this Clearwater plant was going to be one of the greatest environmental assets for the oil and gas industry in recent American history. The West Virginia governor was there um, giving a statement for, for the opening and the initial press release, proud of it, proud of the state of West Virginia. And there was really big money behind this plant cost like a quarter of a billion dollars. It involved a union between a Colorado energy company and Terra Resources, which is big in northern West Virginia. And this really savvy, fancy French waste and water management company called Veolia, which has operations all over the world. It's kind of represents an opposite end of the spectrum from Fairmont Brine. Fairmont Brine operated by a, a company based out of Pittsburgh, pretty local. They got investors, but it's on a different scale than this company where you actually have a, a, a really major company um, that is known all over the world. But I was skeptical from the beginning. I visited that site with oil field workers. And then after less than two years of operations, the site was shut down. And I think what's significant there is the local news story was that it was shut because gas prices went down and they could no longer, you know, it wasn't economically viable any longer. But what I learned in reporting that story is the site was actually shuttered because it just wasn't working. Again, whether it was the local capital setting up this small plan in Fairmont or whether it was international capital setting up this major facility with a lot of gusto, both of them did not work. And the difference though Fairmont Brine, we go in and we saw the mess and the mess is devastating. And we were able to test and know exactly how radioactive the waste left on site was. And it's very radioactive. Clearwater is a bit more of a black box because I don't have access to that site. And so I, I think there's a huge concern of what is left on site there. Um, but until I can connect maybe with a former worker, can serve as a whistleblower and, and lay out just what happened there, or get access to the site or, or work with the state to try and enable them to get access, we still don't know just what sort of mess is left up on that particular hillside. Part of what strikes me as I talk to community members as they learn about this, you know, it's kind of like I went down the rabbit hole as a reporter. And when I publish these stories and a community member or worker reads what was actually happening at these facilities and what was left behind, um, they go down their own rabbit hole. They, they, they suddenly are learning about a part of the oil and gas industry they never knew about. And what I think has been really unfortunate is that these facilities are still getting built. They're still getting permitted by the state. And most, in most cases, the community is still unaware. And so you have, you have these harms piling up and people are not informed about them. And this is especially the case in communities where there's a legitimate need for jobs. And so, you know, it makes our mission, I think, really important of, of trying to spread awareness on this topic. It's this like profiting off the lack of knowledge that's really worrisome to me. You know, th th these are the things we try and get to the bottom of and, and dig up. So I appreciate I have a chance to expose this because 
it does need to be exposed. Justin Noble, thank you so much for doing this work. Keep at it, and we'll look out for more stories to come. Thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia. I really appreciate it, Mason. I know it's a complex topic. It's a hard topic. There's a lot else uh, to cover right now. And so, yeah, thank you all so much for listening and following the work. That was journalist Justin Noble, who's been reporting on radioactivity in the fracking industry. His upcoming book is Petroleum 238, Big Oil's Dangerous Secret and the Grassroots Fight to Stop It. It's out in April. We'll post a transcript of this interview, along with links to his stories and book, on our website, wvpublic.org. As utilities shift to natural gas, as well as wind and solar, the amount of power produced from coal has dropped precipitously over the past 15 years. But what happens to small communities when their coal-fired power plants close? It's a question Roxy Todd went asking in Giles County, Virginia, on the West Virginia line. Standing with the New River to our backs, Mark Perkins points to a large brick and metal structure, the former Glenlyn Power Plant, where he worked for 27 years. You know, you have many memories, and um, a lot of that sort of comes back every time you walk through the building. The Glenlyn plant opened in 1919. Perkins, who still works for Appalachian Power as a safety consultant, says he remembers working alongside men who had been at the plant since the 1940s. But you got to hear the stories, and you know some of them, their their dad worked here, and then they worked here, then their son worked here, and it was sort of a, you know, a big family affair in a lot of ways. Appalachian Power and Dominion Energy have closed most of Virginia's coal-fired power plants or converted them to natural gas in the past decade. A changing energy industry and environmental regulations made it more costly to keep these plants open. I think people were sad, obviously, when it was going to close. Chris McClarney is the Giles County Administrator. He says when Glenlyn closed in 2015, the county lost $400,000 in tax revenue and many jobs. In a rural community, Jobs that like that that pay well uh, are hard to come by. McClarney worked at Glenlyn himself. My first job out of college. For the most part, Giles County is a quiet, rural corner of Virginia. The Appalachian Trail, Cascades Waterfall, and the New River bring some outdoor tourists. McClarney says the manufacturing industry can grow here, and he hopes the Glenlyn building can eventually be repurposed to bring another big employer here. There's about 45,000 square foot of building there that would be an amazing industrial building. The railroad also goes right through the property. We could never build anything like that, and it's very unique. There is a power substation on the site. Appalachian Power still uses it to distribute electricity. But the bulk of the site stands empty. Occasionally, groundhogs or a black bear will wander onto the property. Beneath the ground, there's another legacy. Decades worth of coal ash buried under the dirt. Appalachian Power is required by law to remove all of it by 2035. Coal ash is a waste product, explains Perkins. Basically, what's left over from burning the coal. Studies have linked coal ash contamination to health risks, both for humans and wildlife. Removing it all safely and relocating it to a hazardous waste landfill will take years of work, says Teresa Hall, a spokesperson for Appalachian Power. Right now, we don't know what the future of this site is. And they don't know exactly where the coal ash will end up. The company is looking at possibly moving it to a landfill in West Virginia. Even though the site wouldn't be ready for years, Hall says they want to see it reused, if possible. We've heard of interest, so we want to make sure that we don't leave any stone unturned with respect to what the potential is for this property. Giles County is applying for a grant from the Local Economic Development Agency to do a feasibility study to learn just how much it would cost to renovate this building. Depending on what they learn, they may apply for a federal grant to help repurpose it to produce energy from non-coal sources or a manufacturing facility. In Glenlyn, I'm Roxy Todd. That story was from Roxy Todd at Radio IQ. One year ago, a Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, resulting in a fire that sent smoke from its hazardous materials into the air. And it wasn't just people in Ohio that were affected, but residents just across the Pennsylvania border, too, including one who's been advocating for changes so similar disasters don't happen again. Kara Holshoppel with the Allegheny Front has more. 
At first, Hillary Flint didn't think the derailment would directly affect her. After all, she and her grandmother lived almost four miles away in Enon Valley, Pennsylvania. But when she heard about the plan to burn vinyl chloride from some of the cars, she decided to be cautious and spend the night at a hotel further away, even though their home wasn't in the evacuation zone. As they drove away, her small dog howling in the car, she was glad she did. If you looked in the rearview mirror, you could see the plume. So it was very post-apocalyptic. I thought, oh man, we're never going to be able to go back there. But they did go back. They couldn't afford more than one night away. As they walked through the door, that bleach smell many have described hit them immediately. Flint's eyes watered and her skin became red. To this day, if I'm in my house, I am like a lobster. She also got a migraine and felt an ache in her bones. From when the derailment happened to about six months, I just worked and worked and worked so that I could afford to every few days get a hotel and stay in a hotel for a couple days. In the meantime, Flint emailed and made phone calls to state and federal regulators and to Norfolk Southern. But she was told her home was outside of the impacted area. It couldn't have been affected. This impacts certain people differently. It's very easy to judge from the outside that, you know, maybe my neighbors say, I'm not sick. Hillary must be lying. And so if we just believe people, I think it's really important. Flint is a cancer survivor of renal cell carcinoma. She's most concerned about how living in her home could affect her remission in the long term. So now we're just living in this gray area of what do we do? And it's difficult. Like, I have to watch my grandma who, you know, that's the home her mother built. A month after the vinyl chloride fire and explosion, researchers took samples from her home. Flint says they found dioxins, vinyl chloride, and ethyl hexyl acrylate. When Flint realized how much she was spending on even sporadic hotel stays to get away from all of that, she decided it was time for her and her grandmother to move. She signed a lease for a rental in the Finger Lakes region of New York. She works remotely there about three weeks a month for her full-time job with the advocacy group Beaver County Marcellus Awareness Community. Then she spends about a week in Pennsylvania staying with friends or at her home. And she says it's been frustrating trying to get answers from officials about what comes next. Early on, scrolling Facebook, she realized other people also had a lot of questions about safety and resources and were getting different answers. They thought, why not band together? So Flint co-founded the Unity Council for the East Palestine train derailment with Ohio and other Pennsylvania residents. We created um, a list of demands. (laughs) They were like pretty reasonable things. You know, indoor air testing, long-term water monitoring of like wells, relocation, just things that I thought were really reasonable to ask after a disaster. She says now they're focusing on the systems that need to be rearranged. You know, how do we make sure there's great health testing in the very beginning of things? How do we make sure there's good checks and balances? I'm delusionally hopeful. You know, we the people in the end, we, we will change the systems that hold us back right now. That was Hillary Flint speaking with the Allegheny Front's Kara Holzapel. We'll link to the Allegheny Front's coverage of the East Palestine disaster on our website. A criminal record can follow a person forever and keep them out of work and housing. More than a quarter of West Virginia adults have a criminal record even for cases with no conviction or jail time. Most states have some process to seal or expunge a criminal record. On Us and Them, host Trey Kay hears from those who say it's the road toward a second chance, and others who suggest there's a danger in covering up a person's past. In this excerpt, Trey talks with 37-year-old Amber Blankenship, who hopes to expunge her record. I believe that every human's redeemable, (laughs) including myself, and it's really hard to come back from that because you are facing consequences every day for something that you've made great changes to turn your life around. But, you know, those collateral consequences, they still exist, and they are still preventing West Virginians from going back to work after they've faced consequences for their actions. Have you worked with anyone who has been denied a job because of their their criminal record. Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. As a matter of fact, a, a girl I know, not just jobs, but she's 
been denied housing multiple times and, and, and went through long-term treatment, doing well, working at a dentist office, raising two kids, I mean, doing, living her best life and cannot find safe housing for her family. And in, in these cases where she is denied, has it been made clear you are being denied because of these marks on your criminal record? Yes. Yes. Can you speak specifically about what it is? Felony drug conviction. We, we appreciate your application here. We understand that, that you are gainfully employed and you can pay rent, but we can't have you here because you have these felony drug convictions on your record. That's correct. That's what was said. Mm-hmm. Amber, in five, ten years from now, where would you like to see yourself? I would like to see my record expunged and managing or helping people, directing a program that provides services to humans, that just loves on humans. And that's what I see myself doing, you know, for the rest of my life. Also having my master's degree and continuing to serve at my church that I love so very much and just uh, living life, really enjoying, enjoying it. The benefits that can come from expungement lead to better employment and housing opportunities, as well as becoming part of a community. However, some people say there are dangers when we give a person with a criminal record a clean slate. I'm Senator Eric Tarr. I'm chairman of the Committee on Finance for the State Senate here in West Virginia. So we spoke back in 2019 about second chance laws in West Virginia. And at the time, as I recall, you were one of the lone members who did not support the legislation that passed, I think, back in 2017. So it's five years later. Do, do you still have the same position? Yeah, my position's not changed. I think that any about time that an employer is evaluating an employee to whether or not they're a fit for the organization, that they should have the right to ask any question they want and be able to pursue that answer. So, for example, lying could, could be that in a, in a situation where the employer asks you, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Now, the judge would have told me, you, you can answer no, but you're saying that's a lie. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. I'm saying that's a lie, and I'm saying that with passing that law, we have codified, we have made it okay. The government says it is okay for you to lie, even though it poses significant risk. There are consequences for a person's actions. And that person needs to be ready to live with those consequences for their actions. And what that law says is that the consequences go away as long as you're good for a while, even though, especially in this situation, we know that there is a high relapse rate with somebody who has had a history of addiction. So it's not like the risk just went away. It may have went away for a while, but the risk is always there. You have the risk of liability to the employer for those things that, would, that all attach themselves to addiction. That's an excerpt from Us and Them. The episode is called Expungement, Between Hope and Danger. To hear the entire thing, visit our website or download it from your favorite podcast app. Highland County, Virginia, and its neighbors in West Virginia are some of the southernmost places in the U.S. to make maple syrup. Generations of people in these communities have turned tapping trees for syrup into a long-standing tradition. But modern producers are experimenting with new syrups while adapting to changing demands in a changing climate. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett brings us this story. In late winter in Highland County, maple syrup production is a visible part of the landscape. There are maple trees everywhere, adorned with metal buckets and laced with blue tubing. There's wood smoke rising from the sugar houses. There's a maple sugar road and a sugar hauler and a sugar tree country store. This is the sugar water. Look how clear it is. Pat Lowry and his wife Valerie operate a sugar camp in Highland County called Back Creek Farms. Like many in the area, Pat's family has been making maple syrup here for generations. I was born down the road about three quarters of a mile. Every farm had a sugar shack and it wasn't mainly for syrup, it was mainly for sugar. 
Pat started helping his dad with their maple production when he was eight years old. Valerie says he has maple syrup in his veins. And he would make syrup 365 days a year if he could. Each March, Pat and Valerie take part in the annual Maple Festival, where different sugar camps demonstrate the process of making syrup. Did you know this is what comes out of the tree? Have you seen sugar water before? Throughout the county, people make and sell all things maple, from maple donuts to maple barbecue. The festival's been a staple for over 60 years in Highland County, and the tradition of making syrup here started well before that. But over the years, practices have evolved as people like Pat and Valerie apply new ideas and techniques to production. We're trying to like break the traditions a little bit. People kept asking, what do you have that's new? Nobody had anything to you know it was new. It was, yeah, light syrup, medium syrup, dark syrup. So they started experimenting. They aged syrup in whiskey barrels and infused the pure maple syrup with natural flavors like elderberry. At this year's Maple Festival, Pat's boiling down sap, or around here what they call sugar water, while Valerie offers samples to visitors. Now we are going to do chili pepper and ginger. You all are going to try um, the hickory syrup. And hickory is made from the bark of a hickory tree. You'll get this next. So it's made from the bark of a Gary Mongold of Petersburg, West Virginia, has been going to the Highland County Maple Festival since he was a kid. What pulls the people to Highland County Maple Festival was the donuts. I don't know if you found a donut trailer up there or not, but the line is humongous. The line was humongous. But this year, Gary didn't make it to the festival. He's busy with his own operation. It's his second year of making black walnut syrup. I can take you up to here and show you a little better. Gary's showing me around his sugar grove in his side-by-side. His property is full of walnuts, situated along a steep hillside that opens out to a panorama view of Petersburg, Moorfield, and Mount Storm. All these trees down under here's got tubing to them. Then tubing runs all down here and makes a loop and goes down that holler and catches all these walnut trees back in here. The process borrows the basic principles of maple sugaring. You drill a hole, tap a tree, and out comes the sugar water. Gary pumps the sap down the hill using an old dairy pump. When it's boiled down, it transforms into a dark syrup. I can't describe it. It's awesome, I think. A little sweeter, but it leaves a better taste in your mouth. And I, I eat a bowl of ice cream printer every night with about two tablespoons on it. I just dearly love it. I, if I don't watch, I'll eat my profits up. <laughs> Black walnut syrup is an emerging industry, and Gary is one of just a handful of producers in the region. He's been working with Future Generations University out of Franklin, West Virginia, to conduct research on the process. They're trying to figure out the best techniques for production. You see... Walnut trees don't produce as much sap as maples, and the sap has less sugar. In short, it takes more to make less. And unlike maple, walnut sap contains naturally occurring pectin, which, when it's boiled down, becomes a thick goo, making the syrup difficult to filter. But Gary's undeterred by these challenges, and he's even found a creative use for the pectin. About a year ago, I listened to 89.5 PBS here in Petersburg, and it was talking about the Mayo Clinic working with pectin for arthritis and gout. Gary's had both. So ever since, he's been taking a teaspoon of walnut pectin in his morning coffee. While pectin isn't FDA-approved for this purpose, Gary says it's relieved pain from his arthritis. It's been helping me. Using the pectin, like making the syrup itself, is an experiment. And this season, there's been another variable shaking things up. It hasn't been a very good season for sap to run. Mother Nature has not given us very good weather. Last year, Gary got about 17 gallons of syrup. This year, he added even more taps, but the season's almost over, and so far, he's only gotten five gallons. I'm 63 years old. This is the first year that I remember hardly no snow. We haven't yet to have much snow at all. We ain't even had enough to plow the roads here. In order for the sap to run, you need to have freezing nights and temperatures above freezing during the day. But when we get these 
climate change like we're having and get a 70 degree day, 370 degree days in February, that just put a stop to everything. Back in Highland County, Virginia, temperatures in February averaged nearly 40 degrees Fahrenheit, making it the second warmest February on record. Here's Pat Lowry from Back Creek Farms. Honestly, I have, in my 71 years, I have never seen a February like this. Even the more conventional maple syrup producers were forced to adapt, like Doug Puffenbarger and his wife Terry. It's been four or five generations of Puffenbargers back from the 1700s. They're not interested in making different tree syrups or trying out infusions. We don't want to do that. We just want the real deal and that's what we're doing. But this year, the warm February dried up production mid-season. So when a cold snap hit in March, right around the Maple Festival, her husband decided to try something different. He retapped his maple trees, drilling new holes in hopes of collecting fresh sap. He's never done that before. With the warm temperatures in February, the climate's changing, and that might be a new thing we're going to do. Gary ended up retapping his walnut trees, too. He got five more gallons of syrup, bringing his total for this year up to 10 gallons. And although it's significantly less than last year, he's optimistic. It is kind of risky, I reckon. It's fairly good money when you start selling your product, but uh, I don't look for every year to be bad. There's going to be a lot of good years. And Gary's already thinking about next year. Around this area, tree sap generally runs from the end of January through the end of March. But Gary thinks that pattern might be changing. We're going to try something. It's going to be new. And uh, we're going to try tapping uh, the first week of December. And in Highland County, there's talk of switching the March Maple Festival to earlier in the season, too, when there's a higher likelihood of cold nights, warm days, and sugar water on the boil. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jeff Ellis, Tyler Childers, Amethyst Kia, Joe Dobbs and the 1937 Flood, and Frank George. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.